This is a poem from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And this is from Crowfoot, a hunter and warrior from the Blackfoot Indian tribe, American Indian tribe. What is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. There's uh, an area in Tibet, very, very high in the mountains, where people have no access to matches for fire, for light, for warmth, for cooking. And they have to start a fire without matches, which is a, a project. Once they get a fire going, they never let it go out. They leave a few coals at night, hot coals uh, glowing and cover them just enough so that in the morning they have those hot coals to start their fire for their cooking and for some light and for their warmth. In this area of Tibet, the Buddhist monks practice very deeply with impermanence as their practice. And so they don't try to save any coals at night before they go to bed, before they go to sleep. And they turn their cup over after they finish their last cup of tea at night. They turn it upside down just to let the next person know that they've finished, that they've really finished. So in a sense, every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway. It's a gateway to liberation, a gateway to the deepest compassion, a gateway to freeing the heart. The only thing that we can know for sure is that everything changes. So seemingly, paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of impermanence is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teaching. And it was the initial insight that actually impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and where he grew up in his search for freedom from suffering and his search for enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama his name before he became the Buddha. He grew up in very, very comfortable, very protected surroundings. His mother and his father were the queen and king in the area of what is now Nepal uh, at the foot of the Himalayan mountains. When he was first born, a seer, a wise man, told his parents that this baby 
was either going to grow up to be a great world leader, great king, or if he saw enough suffering in the world, if he saw enough dis-ease in the world, that he would grow up to be a great spiritual teacher. Well, his parents, being royalty, wanted to keep him on that track. And so they did everything they could to keep him going along as a potential king. They gave him everything that he could have possibly wanted. He had a palace for the spring, a palace for the summer, a palace for the winter, a palace for the fall. He was given material things. He was given delicious food, anything he wanted. And as he grew up, he was given entertainment. All It, it said that uh, all the musicians and dancers that entertained him were beautiful young women. He was taken care of and protected in every possible way. But at one point, uh, as a young man, as young people in any culture at any time are want to do, he, he wanted to go out and um, see the village on his own. Well, his father heard about this, and he ordered that anything that would disturb his son, the prince, anything along the way in the village that would disturb him should be removed. Flowers should be strewn along the path. So Siddhartha and his friend, the chariot driver, went out the first morning. And uh, it's not so easy to control everything. So not long after they were out, Siddhartha saw a person walking along the road that was covered with oozing sores, a person walking with a great deal of difficulty person who looked not well. And he'd been so protected, he'd never seen anything quite like this before. He asked his friend, what is this? Who is this? What's going on? His friend said, this is a sick person. Everyone gets sick. You'll get sick. Your parents, your friends, everyone gets sick. Well, enough for one day, thought Siddhartha. Let's go home. Then he spent a fairly restless night. The next morning, though, he wanted to go out again, and so they did. And again, not long after they were riding down the road in the chariot, along came someone walking very, very slowly, stooped over, thin, thin, graying hair, wrinkled, dry skin, had a cane, just kind of creeping along. And Siddhartha, in this protection, this cocoon that he'd been brought up in, said, what? What's this? What's going on here? His friend said, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents, all your friends, everyone gets old. Again, quite an impact it had on Siddhartha. And he said, let's go home. And another restless night was spent, but the next morning he wanted to go out again. And so they did. Not long after they were out, a little closer to the village this time, Siddhartha saw a group of people walking along the road, all dressed in white. And they were wailing and crying and carrying a plank above their heads, 
with a form on it that was covered with some cloth. And Siddhartha said, what's this? What's going on here? His friend said, this is a funeral procession, and they're carrying a dead body. And Siddhartha was quite moved. He, he'd never seen this before. His friend said, everyone dies. You'll die, I'll die. Your parents, all your friends, everyone. Well, this was really disturbing to this young, protected, pampered fellow. So he had to go home again. Spent quite a restless night, sleepless night that night. But the next morning, he wanted to go out again. As they were driving along in their chariot, riding along in their chariot, Siddhartha noticed a man, a young man, walking along with a lightness and a grace and an ease in his step. He was wrapped in uh, orange cloth. And he, he had such a flow in his movement and such a peacefulness and ease about his bearing. Siddhartha said, who's that? And his friend said, this man is a renunciate. He's let go of his regular, ordinary, worldly life in search of the truth. At that point, again, Siddhartha said, let's go home. This is enough for today. Actually, said, this is enough at that point. And so they turned the chariot around and rode back home. And as the story goes, Siddhartha Gautama, after many, many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive, compassionate human being, these sights that he saw, sickness, old age, death, and a renunciate, moved him very deeply, very profoundly. These four encounters are called the four heavenly messengers. Siddhartha was struck by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life that the first three heavenly messengers so clearly displayed, and the obviously seemingly apparent suffering that these first three heavenly messengers uh, brought up in him and um, in the case of the, the funeral, the other people. He found himself really interested and quite powerfully drawn towards the fourth heavenly messenger, actually what that heavenly messenger um, was the energy that he was displaying and uh, what, his, what he represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom from this uh, seemingly apparent suffering in relation to the first three. These four heavenly messengers, old age, disease, death, and a renunciate, were what impelled this young man, Siddhartha Gautama, to leave his very comfortable, very protected surroundings to seek a path to freedom, to seek a path to freedom that would lead to the end of suffering. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously actually, is the myth that somehow, somehow things will stay the same, or the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. 
The Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, after he found the deepest understanding or came upon, came to the deepest understanding, he talked about how powerful, how incredibly powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment of being fully absorbed in the feeling of metta, in the feeling of loving-kindness. And he went on to say that it's far more powerful, far more fruitful than the experience of one moment absorbed in loving-kindness is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. A stage in practice where one really, truly knows very clearly, very surely, the momentariness of all appearances. The powerful direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, the seed of the deepest compassion lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. This is from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. What has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every single breath. This world of form without and the world of form within, none of it, none of it is static. This earth, our earth, it feels so solidly here. It seems so permanently in place, just the way it is right now. A while ago, I received a postcard from a friend. It had this very beautiful picture on the front of it. Uh, it was a photograph of some sand dunes with a mountain behind them. And I, I enjoyed it. Very exquisite. I turned it over and I read the back of the postcard, the printed part explaining the photograph. And this is what it said. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the Guadalupe Mountains. So I turned the card over again. It was still a beautiful picture. And the winds are probably still blowing in those Guadalupe sand dune mountains. I taught in Jerusalem, or in Israel, actually. I didn't actually teach in Jerusalem, but I was in Jerusalem when I taught in Israel uh, this past year. And I was told that um, Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. And there's so much contraction 
in that beautiful city to hold on to all the various ways that it is and the beliefs that are expressed or uh, in the buildings and the, the structures. And it's been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the last century, over many centuries. It just gave some space in there as I was sitting up eating my lunch at a restaurant above and looking down at this amazing city and the energies that happen there, feeling the energies that happen there. The word form implies for us a a solidity for most of us. We think of form as solid. But actually, in reality, all forms are forming and unforming. They're constantly coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world actually can't be solidly objectified. Someone once said, our world isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, I think most of us only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. We mostly know it intellectually. And actually, I think more often we forget it or we ignore it or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, by coveting, by by planning, by living in and out of our memories, by fantasizing, by hoping, by expecting, by fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want our future to be, our children's future to be, the future to be, how we want our next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. They're just thoughts. And then inevitably we have to come to face some disappointment, maybe anger, judgment, and we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Pablo Neruda calls our appointment, or not Pablo Neruda, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. We're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control, a false sense of permanence. To share a short poem from Pablo Neruda. We, the mortals, touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on, knowing they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things, it was my destiny to love and say goodbye. And we're not always able to love and say goodbye. And very often, in fact, I think a lot of the time, we're actually practicing permanence. Because so much of the time, we almost desperately want things to stay as they are, to continue as we know them, or to become the way we want them to be. And much of the time, we really think that we have control. We believe that things will do what we want them to do. But, but really, uh, this belief 
is only make-believe or make-belief, made-up beliefs. As we begin to see more and more clearly, we begin to discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And the tighter we hold on or grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. And quite often we construct our lives on a, this quite rickety, quite flimsy foundation of make-belief, of made-up beliefs, with all of the sometimes misinformation, assumptions, opinions, ideas about this, about that. And we hold on very tightly. As we begin to pay attention, a kind of extraordinary attention, we begin to know very directly, we begin to touch experientially this change, this constant rapidity of change from its micro, from its smallest, to the macro, to the grossest, constant change. There's a a little uh, story I heard a couple of years ago, um, I think over the radio, actually, about a physicist, uh, a physicist who was uh, one that did a great deal of research on matter and its components, and uh, this this research on breaking it down and discovering, uh, breaking it down and discovering, breaking it down and discovering, and finally finding that there was mostly nothing there. And it, it's, uh, the story said that this particular physicist got a little bit crazy uh, when he started really discovering this, and he started wearing these great, big, huge padded slippers around uh, the lab just in case uh, he might fall through the floor. He'd have some padding underneath him. In reality, the very fabric the very essence of our life is change. So why is it that we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change, the beginnings, the endings, the births, the deaths? Why, do we, why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? The truth is that without impermanence there actually wouldn't be any life. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. If there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. And from another perspective, a poem by Red Hawk, called The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go, but he's not free enough to weep, so he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat he grabs his child. He twirls her, through the sea of grain he whirls her, she holding tight, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees he embraces her. 
and then she takes her leaving like a wild wheat flower dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go, weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight, and he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed, to harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting, one by blowing away. Looked at from these perspectives, change, impermanence, is really actually an amazing natural marvel. All of the life on the planet, all is dying all of the time as, in the same volume as new life happens, such as the end of the day and then the morning, the beautiful morning that greets us, summer morning. This is from William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Nature is a very powerful and often very clear mirror for us in terms of understanding lots of things, including, and very much including, impermanence. The cycles of the seasons, for instance, fall with with its amazingly extraordinary dazzling colors in its passing away and its dying, so to say, into winter. Very powerful teacher. A number of years ago, when I was sitting here at this meditation center, three-month retreat, into the fall, taking a walk in the 80-acre forest back here during the height of autumn color. And in New England, it's, as you know, quite spectacular. I was seeing the ground just carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows, shimmering golds and greens. It was just incredible beauty. It took my breath away. And I was quite immersed in this Experience, and then all of a sudden, a knowing came in. Not through thought, not at all through thought, but a very deep, intuitive knowing. This beauty is death. The world is dying in its unbearable beauty. And I cried for about three and a half days after that. Not steadily, but a lot. When you're on a very long retreat, if you need to cry lots and lots of tears, you can. Helpful. I was grieving the loss of the world in a certain way. And at the same time, feeling my heart breaking, I was feeling very elated. It was an opening. It was a release. Tremendous opening and release. A little one-line kind of haiku. When with breaking heart I realize this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. And I don't know who wrote that. 
our nature as nature, the mirror of life around us as within us. As we begin to look more and more closely at our very own process, we might begin to see that we've been living on, living in what one teacher called, or living under, actually, what one teacher called an assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and our thoughts. The grasping on and holding on to our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. All of the habitual fixations that we live with and believe and call our own, call me, call mine, call I, that's who we think we are, I am. As we practice, we begin to see, we begin to experience more and more directly that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least until, as they have appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process just happening, as changing sensations, as changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of energy with various qualities, various flavors, textures. Our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. And this sometimes compulsive, addictive, grasping on, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction as we begin to loosen our grip, so to say. Trying to control what is really actually uncontrollable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life, begins to soften as we, in a sense, begin to open our hands. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control the fear of being in and with life as it is, begins to relax, open. And the fear begins to weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more and more deeply to the truth of the moment, whatever that moment is. So now we're practicing impermanence. This is... This is from Kalu Rinpoche, a great Tibetan yogi and meditation teacher. We live in the illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. In being nothing, we are everything. That is all. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, of I, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more as just process, beginnings, endings, again and again and again, every minute, every second if we're really being attentive. The acceptance of change, of the forming and the unforming of the births and the deaths is actually really, truly the acceptance of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing. What we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so incredibly clear and strong and solid, they change so quickly. And if we 
don't see it in ourselves sometimes. We certainly see it in our children changing split-second fast. Emotional, our emotional states changing very quickly. All relative conditioned states of mind totally dependent on a whole set of conditions. I wanted to share a story that, uh, or something that happened a a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting my son and my daughter-in-law and my two and three-quarter year old grandson. We were outside one afternoon and taking turns spinning him around, holding him and us spinning around with him spinning around. Everybody had, or my son and daughter-in-law had taken two turns, I'd taken one and he wanted me to do it again. And I couldn't. I was too tired. So I said, I can't do it again. So he went to mom and he went to dad and both said, nope, we can't do it anymore. And he burst into tears, sobbing as though it was the most devastating thing that had ever happened to him. And my son said, you're sad. He said, I'm very sad. And he cried and cried and cried. And my son said, We get sad when things that we like end, when things that we're having fun with end. We get sad. And he said, I'm very sad. And he's crying, crying, crying. And my son said, the kitty, the cat, their cat ran by at that moment. He said, you know, the kitty gets sad when there's, I don't even remember what he said, when something about a cat, he made up something about, something the cat likes ends. He said, dog, the wiggles, the dog gets sad when there's no more food in his bowl, which happens regularly with that dog. He says, Grandma gets sad when, and he made up something I don't remember, that ends for me that I like. She gets sad, and he said, Mom gets sad, and he, he said, if the bunny, he said, the bunnies, he's named a few things, and my grandson's eyes opened really wide. He stopped crying, and he listened. And after about six of these examples, he said, I want to run and play in the grass. And he stopped crying. His sadness had passed. When I was thinking about this this afternoon, I thought my son, whose name is Robin, was dancing with Alex, his son, in that sadness. He totally acknowledged, honored the sadness, but took it away from ownership. Everything gets sad. Sadness is a universal experience. And he did it. I I was, our children are our best teachers, and it never ends, I can tell you. This was a very powerful teaching for me. He taught him that sad is not who he is, but sadness happens. And he brought in the fact that, and I didn't know this so clearly until the next day, he, he was teaching him compassion because everything feels sad, not just him. Because the next day, my little grandson said to me, and I don't remember what we were doing. I was trying to remember this afternoon, couldn't. We were doing something, and I, I must have had some feeling of sadness. Slight, probably, because it wasn't anything uh, uh, important so much to me that we were doing. And he looked at me, and he said, Grandma, are you sad? And I said, yeah, I'm sad. And he touched me, you know. And then it was gone. So... It was a a teaching of 
change, a teaching of it's not me, sadness happens, honoring that, and a teaching of um, compassion because it happens universally. And a teaching for me, very from my son, which I really appreciate. I had to call him up the next week and thank him. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all things, all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because this clear seeing of impermanence leads to the end of suffering. Clear and sure insight into impermanence leads to the understanding of the cause of suffering. Clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, knowing surely the momentariness of all appearances, leads to the understanding of selflessness, which is really the seed and the fruit of liberation. So as we begin to live more deeply with this acceptance, this kind of radical acceptance of things as they are in their impermanent changing nature, it allows us to respond more freshly to what really is, what reality is in its completely newness each moment, any moment, every moment, never before met and never before to happen again. And acting as though We don't know anything about it, moving from innocence to innocence, as Krishnamurti said. And so we practice mindfulness, we practice presence, we practice seeing clearly. Impermanence is the gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's the gateway out of the feeling of self-centeredness. And it's the gateway into the experiential understanding of interconnectedness we begin to understand that we are all, all part of this intricate, rainbow-like, endlessly changing reflective web of life. And we also really, truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and the suffering in others that's created by trying to hold on, the anguish, actually, that's created by resistance, resistance to the truth that every facet of life surrounding us and in us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are all intricately woven together with everything constantly reflecting everything in this many-hued, many-faceted, jeweled net of life. So experiencing, directly knowing impermanence is an opening to the deepest heart of compassion for ourselves, and compassion for others. As our understanding deepens, it actually brings a great relief. It brings a lightness to our life. We no longer need to carry around such a heavy load. And then then there's time to 
There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And I'd like to close with just a short poem by an Australian poet and cartoonist named Michael Lunig. He draws a little cartoon with each poem. This particular cartoon is a little line drawing of a man, his arms stretched straight out to the side, and the man's head is turned to the side. In the hand of this man is a frying pan with a big glob of burned stuff and billows of smoke coming out it. And the man's eyes are wide open, looking sort of in amazement at the frying pan and its contents. And this is the poem that goes with the cartoon. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. Let's sit together for just a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.